Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Robert Kirstein, author of the book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. What happened in 1982 is the Reagan administration started a blockade along US-1, and all cars leaving Key West, driving up US-1, that's the only way to get out of here, um, were potentially stopped by the Border Patrol. We'll discuss an eyewitness account of the 1840 attack on Indian Key. As I heard the continuous yelling of the Indians, which sounded alarmingly near, without fully comprehending the cause, I said, what is it, what is it? She replied, the Indians, come and be very quiet. And we'll talk about Norman Studios, which produced early African-American films in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Robert Kirstein is author of the award-winning book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. We spoke with Kirstein on the deck of a cruise ship overlooking the Old Town section of Key West. We could look down at the old Custom House, the Audubon House, and the streets that are home to Sloppy Joe's Bar and many other tourist-oriented businesses. Key West is primarily known as a tourist mecca today, but as Kirstein explains, in the early 1800s, residents made their living from salvaging shipwrecks. The mainstay of the economy was the wrecking industry. And many people suggest that around the 1840s, 1850s, Key West had the highest per capita income of any town in the United States because of the wrecking industry. They don't know that for sure, but certainly the wrecking industry was the key to the economy. Ships would wreck in the Florida Straits, and the wreckers, many of them from the Bahamas, New England, um, North Atlantic states, who came to Key West because of the wrecking industry would go and rescue the uh, sailors, uh, rescue the cargo. If they could, they would repair the ships. If not, they would just auction off the cargo. And a lot of people made a lot of money off of the industry. Other 19th and early 20th century industries in Key West involved turtles, sponging, the military, and commercial fishing. We had commercial fishing, always important. Some of the wrecking uh, boats actually engaged in commercial fishing as well. Sometimes they would sail and so they catch in, the, in Cuba. Um, but also we did have the turtling industry develop and that was significant for decades. Also the sponging industry was very important for decades. It was initially eclipsed by Tarpon Springs by around 1900 or so. But that also was important. And again, with the sponging industry, many of those engaged in it came to Key West from the Bahamas, both whites and blacks. Also, the military was important on and off in Key West. Commodore Porter, in 1823, formed his anti-pirate squadron. They were based in Key West. They went into the Caribbean area to try to uh, fight off the pirates. And on and off, Key West has had a very significant military presence, especially during World War II. It was a military town. 
Before the cigar industry came to Ybor City, it was an integral part of Key West's economy. The cigar industry was very important. Uh, after the Ten-Year War began in 1868 for Cuban independence from Spain, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Ybor, for example, moved a cigar factory from Cuba to Key West. Others already had located here, so he wasn't the first. So many manufacturers uh, opened cigar factories in Key West, and it was the mainstay of the economy for decades. By 1885, there were more Cuban immigrants in Key West than Bahamians, and that was due to the cigar industry because they had been skilled, many of them, in rolling cigars. And that was the key to the changing nature of the island. You had many kind of uh, cigar worker areas for neighborhoods uh, that were very, very prominent and institutions supporting the cigar workers. And also because of the heavy Cuban population, Key West along with uh, Tampa and other communities were in the forefront of gathering support for the Cuban War for Independence, the second war, which began in 1895. From the deck of the Carnival Sensation, Kirstein and I can see the neighborhood where Key West's most famous resident lived, writer Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway kind of landed here in a sense by chance. At least he stayed here for a period of time by chance. He and his second wife, Pauline, uh, sailed from Paris, went to Cuba, then to Key West. And they were only going to stay for two or three nights and pick up a Ford that Uncle arranged to pick them up in Key West. But uh, for whatever reason, the car was delayed and Ernest decided he loved the place. He stayed here for a while. He got to know some locals, some friends of his came down and he lived on in Key West uh, initially in a variety of places. Then he moved into what we call the Hemingway House in 1934. And he was here most of the 1930s on and off. He also often uh, traveled a lot. Initially, he loved the island. Then when tourists began coming in relatively large numbers, he began to have second thoughts. He moved away in part because he met Martha Gellhorn and Sloppy Joes, who became his third wife. They moved to Cuba, but also, according to one of his biographies, he probably would have uh, moved away anyhow as more and more tourists arrived. Many famous literary figures called Key West home, including writer John Dos Passos, poet Robert Frost, and playwright Tennessee Williams. Yes, he spent much more time than Hemingway. He first arrived in Key West in the early 1940s. He later arrived again and purchased a house in the 1950s. And he lived in Key West until he uh, passed away. Now again, he traveled a great deal, but Key West was his home and he generally spoke very, very favorably about the place. So it was a place where he could, uh, he loved the water. Uh, at one point he said he loved the fact that there were so many sailors around. Um, and um, he had many, many friends come to uh, visit him and he, he enjoyed Key West. President Harry S. Truman spent so much time in Key West that his home here was called the Little White House. He spent many what he called working vacations here. Uh, again, many uh, people came to visit him, many government officials, including members of the Supreme Court, at least one, uh, which is kind of interesting. He played poker with a uh, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, which today might be frowned upon, I don't know. But um, yes, he just loved Key West. He got to know a lot of the uh, families that were here. And um, the Little White House is uh, now a prominent tourist attraction. By the mid-20th century, Key West was attracting people who were seeking alternative lifestyles, including hippies. 
Hippies uh, certainly discovered Key West in the 1960s, 1970s. They uh, spent time at the uh, Sunset Festival, which is still uh, going on in Key West. Uh, they engaged in hippie behavior, however you want to characterize that in terms of drug use, etc. The locals responded to them in different ways. Some uh, very positively feeling they kind of livened up the island. Others were more critical, but they were an important part of the mix in the 60s and 70s, along with a growing gay population. The military was still there in large numbers until around 1974 when crewmen uh, annex as it's now called uh, closed um, drug smuggling was very prominent shrimpers were very prominent from 1949 when they first found pink gold as they called it uh, through the 70s and into the 80s so Key West had a very interesting mix of people and the hippies were an important part of that mix Key West is known for its thriving gay culture which Kirstein says has contributed much to the economy it was very, very important in a variety of ways. Fantasy Fest was initially started in 1979, in part due to the efforts of a number of gay business people who had moved to Key West in the preceding decade. They wanted to enhance uh, tourism, gay tourism and straight tourism. They played a very major role in attracting tourists. Uh, beyond that, they played a very major role in renovation of houses in what we call Old Town, the old section of Key West, uh, near Mallory Square and so on. You had half homes built decades and decades before that had undergone disrepair. Uh, many gays purchased the houses, fixed them up, and with the gay presence came gentrification. The prices of housing skyrocketed, and today um, it's unaffordable to all but a small sect of the population. But gays were very, very important in terms of the life of Key West, and Tennessee Williams played a role there, an outspoken gay male. Um, even prior to Tennessee Williams, Elizabeth Bishop, a lesbian, had spent much time in Key West and lived with a couple of different uh, female partners. So gays played a significant role in kind of reinventing Key West in the 60s, 70s, and afterwards. The independent spirit of Key West residents actually led to the island briefly seceding from the United States in 1982. Key West by the mid-70s, the kind of movers and shakers and many of the community felt that they had to bring in more tourists because the major Navy base closed in 1974. And they were gradually probably getting more tourists during the 1970s. We don't know exact numbers, but apparently that was the case. And in 1980, what happened is the Muriel Boatlift um, brought many uh, Cuban refugees to Key West. It got national attention, and tourists stayed away to some extent. They just didn't think it was the laid-back kind of atmosphere they wanted during that period of time. So a renewed tourism push began in the fall of 1980, continued in 81. Uh, people uh, now who visited Key West had to pay a bed tax, and the proceeds from that bed tax were used to advertise Key West and more and more tourists were coming. But what happened in 1982 is the Reagan administration started a blockade along US-1 and all cars leaving Key West, driving up US-1, that's the only way to get out of here, um, were potentially stopped by the Border Patrol. And this slowed up tourism into the island because people just didn't want to face that hassle as they left. So Key West was very dissatisfied, the mayor and many officials and citizens who wanted more tourism. So they said, well, we're just going to secede from the union. And they did that. They announced in advance that they were going to secede. They said, we're being treated uh, like a foreign country uh, with the border patrol. And 
were going to succeed. They did so. They surrendered, I think it was an hour later or something like that. In the interim period, they had a minister of defense who used a loaf of Cuban bread to hit a sail over the head. Um, and that was his version of firing at Bali. Uh, they surrendered, they asked the United Nations for, I think it was a billion dollars in foreign aid, they didn't get any of course, but they did receive national attention for their secession, the formation of the Conch Republic. Of course, they still celebrate that every year. So it's kind of interesting. On one hand, what Key West is trying to do is attract more tourists, which many cities throughout the US and the world were trying to do, but the strategy they used, uh, secession, was somewhat unique. There have been many changes in Key West from the wreckers of the 1800s to the tourist-driven economy today. Despite the diversity in Key West, the island has become much more exclusive. It has. Uh, on one hand, you have mass tourism, people coming on cruise ships, some of which are relatively affordable. But aside from that, tourism has become disproportionately for the very well-to-do. The prices in hotels and motels have skyrocketed. A recent study came out that showed that Key West was a more expensive destination than places like New York and Honolulu. I think those figures are you know, difficult to interpret in a certain sense, but it's become very expensive. The more affordable hotels and motels, right when you come into the island from Stock Island, um, have closed the doors and been replaced with more exclusive places, as you say. Also, what you've had are many second and third homeowners purchase places in Key West. In many cases, the owners are there just three or four or five months a year. The rest of the time, they are empty. So it has become accessible to a smaller section of the population in terms of being able to purchase homes, but also even in terms of tourism other than some of the cruise ships. Although Key West has become more exclusive and more commercial in recent decades, it still retains its unique quality. That's what I think. It has become more commercial. You go on Duval Street, the main street, you have many chain stores, coach and you know, so on and so forth. But still, many people love the island for good reason. It's pedestrian friendly, interesting vegetation. You have many still uh, fascinating guest houses catering to different types of population. It's a uh, island. It's warm in the summers, needless to say. So it still attracts many, many tourists. I mean, it's close to capacity, uh, the hotel and motels, several months of the year. And it used to be that it was kind of a four months tourist destination. Now it's closer to 12 months. It still attracts people, there's no doubt about that. Robert Kirstein is author of the book, Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. Changes in This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Watch the television version of Florida Frontiers on your local PBS affiliate or go to our website at myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're discussing an eyewitness account of the 1840 attack on Indian Key. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, in 1840, right at the end of the Second Seminole War, uh, the a group of Seminole Indians attacked a small settlement on Indian Key, and among the victims of that attack was a gentleman named Dr. Henry Perrine. Now, Henry Perrine was not originally from Florida. He was a physician in uh, New York. He was born in New Jersey and was actually descended from 17th century French Huguenots. Uh, he lived most of his life in New Jersey, New York, and it wasn't until uh, the 1820s that he received a commission uh, to serve as a consul down in Mexico, specifically in uh, Compeche in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And he began cultivating tropical plants for commercial purposes and was fascinated with botany. Uh, and he was convinced that he could bring many of these plants back to the United States, could cultivate them for, uh, again, commercial purposes, but also for medicinal purposes. And he chose South Florida as the perfect site for that uh, cultivation of, of these tropical plants. Uh, so he began sending seeds back to folks who were living in Key West and in South Florida at the time. And by the uh, mid-1830s, uh, he began securing a tract of land in South Florida along the Biscayne Bay region, um, uh, south of present-day Miami. Uh, but in the meantime, he had moved to Indian Key, which is approximately halfway up the Keys. It's considered part of the, of the Upper Keys. And it's a small island, about 12 uh, square miles. But at the time, uh, it was uh, beginning to develop into a commercial hub. Uh, in fact, by 1840, by the date of the attack, it was becoming a commercial center. So there were several buildings, proprietors, and, and Dr. Prine uh, felt that this would be the perfect location for his uh, tropical plant operation. So he moved his family down from New York uh, in 1838, uh, his wife, two daughters, and his young son, Henry Jr. Uh, and they lived on Indian Key for uh, almost two years. Now, as I mentioned before, this is in the middle of the Second Seminole War, but for the Perrine family, uh, the, the war was far away. Uh, they, they certainly did interact with some of the Seminole Indians who uh, would, would visit with some of the traders on Indian Key and Key West, uh, but there was really no hostility between the, the parties. They felt like the war was something that was very far away. Uh, so they, they lived there for uh, almost two years. The family uh, really started to enjoy their time on Indian Key uh, and some of the uh, memoirs and remembrances that we have of the family members. Uh, they, they spent a lot of time hunting and fishing and, and capturing turtles and exploring uh, the mostly uninhabited Florida Keys at that time period. Well, life on Indian Key did change dramatically in 1840 for the Bryan family as they, they did feel the impact of the Second Seminole War. That's right. On uh, the early morning hours of, of August 7th, 1840, a group of uh, approximately 100 Seminole Indians landed uh, on an um, uninhabited part of the island in, in about 17 dugout canoes, and they quietly snuck into the center of town uh, and began slowly raiding a lot of the uh, residences on Indian Key. And in the uh, book that we're looking at today, this is actually a, a memoir that was published in 1885 by Henry Perrine Jr., and he spends it in entire chapter talking about uh, this particular attack. And I'll just read briefly an excerpt from uh, his remembrances of that night. He says here, quote, I was lying peacefully asleep on a mattress on the floor in the southeast corner of the hall, unconscious of danger. My sister Hester came back and wakened me, saying in a whisper, quote, come, don't make any noise. As I heard the continuous yelling of the Indians, which sounded alarmingly near, without fully comprehending the cause, I said, what is it? What is it? 
She replied, the Indians, come and be very quiet, unquote. So he goes on to uh, uh, talk about how his family narrowly escaped being uh, apprehended by the Seminole Indians. In fact, during this attack, uh, there were about a dozen people who were killed. Most of the inhabitants were, were able to, to make their way off of the island. But in uh, the ensuing uh, fighting, many of the buildings were unfortunately burned down. Henry Perrine Jr., his two sisters and his mother, in fact, one of his sisters was very ill, so they actually had to carry her down into the basement. They were able to escape underneath the wharf that was over the wall waterfront. And the wharf was actually used to, to capture turtles to keep them alive. So they were able to get down. It was low tide. They uh, escaped down into this, essentially a turtle pen, um, while their father, Dr. Perrine, stayed in the cupola in the, in the top portion of the house and was actually trying to converse with some of the uh, Seminole Indians uh, to try and, and hopefully spare uh, his life and also the life of his family and hopefully his property as well. Now remember, Dr. Perrine has spent years cultivating this tropical garden and had worked on a manuscript and, and you know, all of this was unfortunately going to be lost if they continued to destroy the town. But unfortunately, Dr. Perrine was killed, but the family did escape. They made their way to a small boat that was anchored offshore. Eventually, a key that was very close to Indian Key, there was a small military hospital, and, and a few uh, U.S. Navy sailors came to the aid of, of the surviving inhabitants. They were able to escape, but again, not without the complete destruction of the, uh, the town itself, and uh, it never really did recover from that destruction. What happened to the 13-year-old Henry Perrine after his family left Indian Key? Well, as I mentioned before, the Indian Key attack is only one chapter in this manuscript, in this memoir. The, the book wasn't actually uh, commercially uh, published. It was just printed for uh, purposes of his grandchildren. In fact, the, the title of the book is Accounts of, of Grandfather's Life. And uh, it was really just an, intended for his grandchildren to talk a little bit about some of his exploits. Uh, Henry Perrine, uh, eventually the, the family made their way back after their father's death. They made their way back to New York. He was educated. He uh, went to law school, practiced law briefly. Uh, and then in the uh, late 1840s, he was attracted to California during the gold rush and, and made his way on a sailing ship. He talks quite a bit about that expedition, sailing around South America, uh, ends up in San Francisco, is involved in some mining operations, and then gets involved in um, selling goods to uh, some of the miners, has uh, several businesses that do fairly well, others uh, uh, failed. Um, but he made his way back to New York and then actually came back to Florida after he was married and started a family was visiting Key West and actually uh, visited Indian Key at this point. Uh, many of the exotic plants and palm trees that his father had planted uh, decades earlier uh, were gone, but some of them still existed. He was able to show his family uh, some of that land. And he settled in uh, South Florida, uh, that original tract of land that Dr. Perrine had petitioned the government for. They did eventually give to his, his wife, to his widow, and that land was eventually given to uh, Henry Jr. He settled on the property, but unfortunately could not make a commercial operation out of the uh, agricultural operations that they were attempting. So he made his way back to New York and, and lived most of his life in Buffalo until he died in the early 20th century. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. 
In the early 20th century, Jacksonville was known as the winter film capital of the world. There were 30 film studios in Jacksonville. Norman Studios produced films starring African Americans. Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. The Norman Studios really is significant to Florida history because, to our knowledge, the studio still standing is one of the very few remnants of Florida's time as a, you know, the winter film uh, capital of the world. But it also is significant in that, you know, it shows that Florida uh, had a real place in civil rights history because this was one of the very first places where all black cast films were done anywhere in the country. That was Devin Leslie. She is the co-chair and publicity director for Norman Studios in Jacksonville. She talked to me about Richard Norman's legacy in Florida's film history. In the early days of filmmaking, the New York area was where many film production companies called home. However, the freezing conditions during the dead of winter drove many crews, whose film stock was literally freezing together, to find a hub for production in the wintertime. They settled on North Florida. One such producer was Floridian Richard Norman. Richard Norman was born in Middleburg, but he grew up in Jacksonville. He really started his filmmaking career, though, traveling through the Midwest. He had a script, and he had uh, footage of a train wreck. And he would travel through and stop in several uh, different little towns, we believe about 40 of them that we know of. And he would ride around town in this you know, big open-top car with a big sign on the side that said, Have You Talent? And he let people know that he was making a movie in this town, and he would invite all the townsfolk out to audition. Of course, a couple of the bigger parts were always saved for you know, the mayor and the banker and the mayor's beautiful daughter and you know some of the big wigs in town. But he would bring together the town to audition. He would you know shoot the film, edit it, and then would premiere it you know in that town. At some point, though, he got interested in race filmmaking. But and we were starting to see also uh, film houses being built you know specifically for African American audiences. The problem was that they were going to the to the movies and they were not seeing themselves in ways that you know that they wanted to be you know portrayed. He was one of the first whose films uh, portrayed African American characters as heroes. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were uh, aviators. They were you know they played the bad guys and the good guys. That really is how Mr. Norman we we believe got his start in race filmmaking. Miss Leslie goes on to tell me about one film. The Flying Ace, which was recently restored by the Library of Congress. The Flying Ace is probably Mr. Norman's most successful film. The amazing thing about The Flying Ace is that it was inspired by Bessie Coleman, who was the first black female stunt pilot in America. Now, Bessie had to go to France to get her license because America would not teach her. She had seen The Bulldogger, which featured Bill Pickett, probably the first black film stunt uh, performer. And the plan was to make a film that was based on Bessie's life and that starred her. In April of 1926, Bessie came to Jacksonville to do an air show. Unfortunately, an accident happened with her plane. The plane flipped. It threw her out, and she died on impact. Mr. Norman, though, was still, you know, I'm sure heartbroken, but was still inspired by her story. So later that year, he released The Flying Ace. It's amazing in that it was inspired by this incredible black aviation figure. But we're told also by war historians that some of the young boys got inspired to fly themselves. And some of them, we understand, became some of the Tuskegee Airmen. 
By the 1930s, the film industry moved on from Jacksonville, and Norman Studios began to decline, but its legacy should not be forgotten. The Norman Studios is important not just to Florida's history, but to civil rights history. This was one of the first places where all black cast films were shot, and not just black cast films, but films that portrayed African Americans in ways that they really always should have been portrayed as heroes, as doctors, lawyers, aviators, adventurers. This was one of the places where those opportunities were first afforded. And we're very proud, just as a city, you know, to have been part of that. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.